Well, good morning once again, Bell Shoals family. My name is Corey Abney, and I serve as the lead pastor here. I want to welcome those of you in the room with us here at our Branding Campus. And as always, we want to welcome our online audience from all across the country. So good to have you with us today as we continue in our teaching series called Beginnings, where we're walking through the beginning of human history and seeing God's redemptive plan unfold really from the very beginning of time. And we've talked about the first days, we've talked about the first people, the first marriage, we've talked about the first sin, we've talked about the first murder. And today we're going to talk about the first flood and the global flood that came upon the earth during the days of Noah. And and you know what's interesting to me about the flood and how it is portrayed today about Noah and the ark is is how it's presented to us as a a kid's story or a fable. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I find it incredibly peculiar that Noah and the ark and the flood is so often presented in terms of of a story that's endearing for children. And we see um, all kinds of children's products and coloring books and uh, vacation Bible school materials. And every time we see them, I can't help but to, but to think uh, there's something a little off about it. Like, let, let me show you just kind of a, a, an example of what I'm talking about. Like when it comes to like Noah's Ark, like this is kind of what we see today. I mean, look at those cute little dolphins in the midst of the flood waters and the animals are so happy. There's Noah with his staff and he's like, we made it. And um, the animals are so happy. And it's just like, uh, I don't know, this happy little party, you know, with rainbows and beaches and birds and everybody's so happy. And like this kind of material is everywhere when you think about Noah in the flood. But what I find so peculiar about that is that the flood, a global universal flood, (laughs) had nothing really to be happy about. (laughs) It was actually a pretty horrific scene. And I just find it so peculiar that we've taken that, you know, and it's it's been largely now presented as just something that's uh, popular with kids and color and happy animals and just, kind of chilling on top of the water and dolphins swimming. And I'm thinking, actually, if you go back to what we're going to look at today, what you find is a scene that was like horrific. Like it would be like the last thing you would ever think about drawing up on a cartoon and putting in your baby's nursery. Uh, Let me give you, I think, a better portrayal of what happened. It's actually a painting drawn by Francis Danby back in 1840. The title of this painting is called The Deluge. And this is actually a better representation of what the days of the flood were all about. You see people drowning in the water. You see people desperately trying to get to higher ground. If you look in the center of the painting in the background, underneath the moonlight, you see the ark drifting away in the distance and people climbing over each other to try to get to the highest ground possible. We know tragically that none of them survive. (laughs) And 
Francis Danby better encapsulates what the flood looked like than any nursery that we have today. Can you imagine putting a copy of this painting in your child's nursery? <laughs> like a mobile going around as your baby falls asleep of people screaming. <laughs> trying to cling to high ground before they drown. <laughs> Isn't it peculiar when you think about it that like we've taken the global flood and we've kind of turned it into a, a cute little kid's story somehow that oh, sweet little Noah and his family are saved with all these happy animals that don't poop or stink. Um, and you know, they, it's just, there were, no, there were no conditions surrounding the flood that would have been problematic that might give us pause to communicate to a two-year-old, right? It's just, it's just fascinating to me because as we're gonna see today, the actual story, the historical event known as the global flood was, it was horrific. This isn't something that we would ever think about. I mean, looking at the history, putting in a nursery, uh, it, was, uh, it was a pretty bad deal. And last week we talked about the, the sin that occurred between Cain and his brother Abel. As Cain murders him, we see that not far removed after Adam and Eve sin against God and rebel against God and God told them that the day that you rebel against me, you will die. And now we're seeing death has entered the world and has entered the world with the murder of Cain, with his brother Abel. And, and, and then uh, as you get into Genesis chapter five, what you discover is a genealogy that gets us from Adam to Noah. And the focus of Genesis five is just, just, just getting us from Adam to Noah. And we see a genealogy and we see, we see Enoch who's a righteous man, but by and large, everyone else is messed up. And, 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 and what you discover as you read through Genesis five, there's a phrase in there moving through the genealogy. It seems like a normal phrase to us, but actually if you go back to the, to the, to the, to the beauty of God's original design, this phrase is, is in and of itself horrific. There's a phrase repeatedly, and he died. And over and over and over again for probably 1,600 years, moving from Adam to Noah, people are dying. That was not God's original intent, but that's the consequence of sin in the world. And so moving from Adam to Noah, you see these generations unfolding and people die. And, and people not only die, but actually we see that people get worse. We see that as people multiply across the earth, sin multiplies across the earth and the condition of the world goes from bad to worse and it gets to a place where it is so messed up, there are some very unique things happening. All right, so we're gonna pick it up in Genesis 6 and verse one. Here's what it says. Now, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And so the Lord said, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt and their days will be 120 years. Now the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them and they were the powerful men of old, the men of renown or the famous men. Now notice here the world 
has gone from bad to worse. We've moved from Adam now through all of these descendants to Noah. Death is in the world and sin is in the world and sin as people is multiplying. And everywhere people go, they take sin with them and they're, 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 they're working deeper and deeper and deeper in, the, in their sin. And it's, it's now a world that is so corrupt as we're gonna see God's going to act, but it's also a world that is incredibly unique because of some things that are happening with the sons of God and the daughters of men. And so right out of the gate, right here in Genesis 6, giving us the context for the flood, we see one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible. Who are these sons of God and what does it mean that they have married and born offspring with the daughters of men? Well, there are two primary views. If you're new to the Bible or even if you've studied the Bible for years, you'll find there are two prevailing views today about who the sons of God are. One view says that the sons of God are the descendants of Abel, the righteous son of Adam and, or excuse me, not Abel, of Seth. Um, Abel didn't make it through the end of the story as we saw last week. And so uh, Seth, and so you have the righteous um, descendants of Seth refer to the sons of God. And then the daughters of men are the descendants of ungodly Cain. And so you have an intermingling and intermarriage here and that creates a problem. That's one view. Uh, the, the other prevalent view is that the sons of God are fallen angels who take on the form of men or who uh, possess men and end up mingling with the daughters of mankind and they create an unholy offspring known as the Nephilim. And it's a demonstration of how uniquely bad things were on the earth at the time. Now, I, I, I'll tell you briefly that I, in my view, I, I think the sons of God are these fallen angels working in a rather unique way, the world of mankind. Let me, let me tell you quickly why I, th I think this is the case. Um, first of all, anywhere you see the phrase, the sons of God in the Old Testament, in this construction, it means angels, both elect and evil at times. Let me take you to Job 1.6. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with him. God calls a meeting of all of his angelic hosts, both fallen and righteous, and Satan comes along with them because, this is a footnote, when God calls a meeting of all of his created beings, Satan shows up because he is submissive to God. But notice here, the sons of God are angelic beings. Job 38, talking about creation, actually. Job here is talking about creation. While the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is before mankind was created. Notice the sons of God here reference the angelic host. So that's the first reason. Whenever we see sons of God in the Old Testament, we only see it a few places, but it always refers to angels, fallen angels or righteous angels. Secondly, what we find in the New Testament is that Peter and Jude refer back to a very unique time before the flood where there seems to be some type of awkward angelic intervention. Here's what Peter says, 1 Peter 3, 19, talking about 
what's transpiring here in which he also went, Jesus now, after his death, in between his death and resurrection, he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. I believe the spirits there is talking about some type of angelic being. We have other reason to interpret the word that way in the New Testament. So he's, Jesus is proclaiming something to the spirits in prison. Watch this. He says, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, my interpretation of that is that these angels were violating their, their um, area of dwelling by coming to in. Uh, and dwell mankind or to possess mankind and then produce this unholy offspring, okay? Now, Peter also says, 2 Peter 2, 4, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. And Peter notices chronologically moving through the days of the flood to make a point about false teachers in his day. Talking about these angels, these, these spirits who were put in chains. And then Jude, I believe, also references the same event in Jude 1, 5, and 6. He says, I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And watch this, the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Now you put all of that together, here's my view. What you find is that somehow, and we're not 100% sure how, the world was so corrupt during the days of Noah that angels were possessing mankind or taking on human form somehow, producing offspring from human women, and thus you have these men of renown known as the Nephilim on the earth as an example of how bad things were. And Peter and Jude help us to understand that Jesus has proclaimed victory to those spirits who were put in chains and are awaiting the day of final judgment. And and that's a view historically I think makes the most sense. Now, you may have a life group leader who says, hey, I think it's the descendants of Seth. And I just want you to know, this is not a first-tier issue. They are more than welcome to be wrong about this. And um, when we get to heaven one day, I will gladly accept their apology, okay? Um, no, I'm teasing, of course. This is one of those interpretive issues where it's really difficult. We don't know 100% for sure what was happening, whether it's the descendants of Seth intermarrying with the descendants of Cain or whether it's, um, according to my view, it's, it's, it's actually some type of fallen angel activity on the earth and the Nephilim. Okay, he, can I just give you the bigger point we, we all need to agree on here? Whatever's happening here that Moses describes is really messed up. This is messed up stuff. The world is messed up. And what we've seen in just about 1,600 years from Adam to Noah is a world where people are plunging deeper and deeper into their sin and dysfunction. And potentially even you have 
demonic activity that's producing a race of people that are the men of renown. The, the world is messed up. Mankind is evil, pressing deeper and deeper and deeper into their evil. And as God looks at the world that he made and that originally he made good, what he is seeing is the rampant spreading of evil and dysfunction. And so, so here's, here's what we're told happens next. Watch this. So when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all of the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. I know sometimes we think of sin as that which, you know, it violates the word of God or the law of God or something. Can I just remind you today that sin grieves the heart of God? Because we are a people made in his image. And to rebel against him the way that we do, the thoughts of mankind at this point in human history set on evil continuously, there is an aspect where that just breaks the heart of God. And so the Lord says this in verse 7. I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Now a couple things I want to point out to you, okay. First of all, just keep in mind that the description of mankind here prior to the flood gives evidence to what we call our doctrine of total depravity. The fact that there is nothing within mankind that commends itself to God. There is nothing in any of us that would position us before a righteous and a holy God so as to have a relationship with him. We have all sinned and rebelled against a righteous and a holy God. We have fallen short of the glory of God. May I remind you of what Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? And you see, this doctrine of total depravity does not mean that, that, that we're incapable of doing a good thing. But what it means is that, is that every capacity that we possess is so harmed and tainted by the fall that there really is no true goodness left in us. So that even the good that we do is so tainted by our sin that it is offensive to God. Moreover, it's often the case that the good that we do in some way we think will benefit us. So the scripture says, <laughs> even our good works, even our righteousness is as but filthy rags. This is what it means that we are totally depraved, that we bring nothing good to the table, that we are sinners and sinful. It's that we are so harmed by the fall. Sin is such a power in us. As we talked about last week, sin is not just something we do, right? Sin is a power within us that, 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 that pushes against the good and gracious purpose and plan of God, the presence of God. We, we are so fallen and broken that, that there is really no true goodness in us. 
And so God, as we see here in the days of Noah, is going to intervene in a profound way. And as we see these descriptions of God and his grief, let me just remind you that often we speak of God in human terms. Moses is doing that here. It's, it's an anthropomorphism. It's a way of speaking of God in a human way. And thus, whenever you see this language that God regrets, it's, it's not that God was caught off guard by man's sin. It's not that God did not know in advance what was going to transpire. It's speaking of the grief of God in human form. It's, it's, it's trying to help us as finite human beings come to terms with the fact that God is a God who loves, who cares, who is invested in the world that he's made and the people that he's made. And so there's a sense in which on a human level that God has regretted what he's done because of the sin of mankind. This is not that God has changed his mind or that God is caught off guard. It's just reflecting in human terms to the best we can understand it, that God is grieved by how bad things have gotten on the earth. He's not surprised by it. He's not caught off guard by it, but yet he's grieved by it. And so he's going to act. And how is he going to act? Well, as the scripture says, he's going to bring judgment on the world. He's going to wipe out mankind and the animals with them. But there is one, we are told, Noah, who finds favor with the Lord. And I love how that's phrased because can I just remind you today that Noah, this is huge, listen to me, did not earn favor, he found favor. And Noah was not perfect. We're, we're gonna talk about this next week. I mean, not long after coming off the ark, <laughs> Noah's like, I gotta have a drink. <sighs> He's far from a perfect man. So this isn't that Noah earned favor, Noah found favor. He was given favor. And yes, we're gonna see even today, he's a man who walked by faith and we give him credit for that. And the scripture gives him credit for that. But God does not work through Noah because Noah was perfect. God works through Noah because God is faithful. And he told Noah's descendant all the way back to Eve that he's gonna raise up one from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And so he's not going to annihilate all of mankind. He is going to save a remnant that will ultimately lead to one who is born of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. And Noah finds favor because we have a God who is faithful to his promise. May I just remind you today that if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you've been saved by grace, your life has been changed, you did not earn that favor, you found it by the grace of God. The scripture says, right, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Salvation is something that is freely given, it's not earned except through the work of Jesus. And so I just want you to see here that the world is so bad. We've got these Nephilim running around, right? We've, we've got mankind and, 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 and the heart of every person so intent on evil that it's on their mind continuously and the world is in a really, really, really bad place. And so God says, I'm gonna intervene, but he also gives favor to one man and his family, Noah. And so here's what happens next. God says to Noah, understand that I am bringing a flood. 
This wasn't normal. This wasn't something that happened in human history. This is unique. This is going to be a first. And God is saying something to Noah that Noah needed faith to process, right? He said, understand, I'm bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But he says, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife and your son's wives. And you are also to bring the ark into the ark, two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, in other words, two of every kind, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And they will come with you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gathered as food for you and for them. And look at this, Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Noah was a man who walked by faith. And to his credit, man, Noah does what God asked him to do. I just want to highlight that, again, Noah's not perfect, but Noah was a man who does what God commanded him to do by incredible faith. It's not like Noah could say, oh yeah, God, yeah, I can do that. Because I mean, I remember a few years ago when you flooded this other part of the earth. (laughs) No, 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 no. Noah, for many, many, many years, had to build an ark so large that it's never been duplicated. Not even by Ken Ham. (laughs) Although he's done a pretty good job of it. And Noah did all of this by faith. Despite the ridicule, I can only imagine what this man had to endure But he did it. That's why the Hebrews 11 says this, by faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen. Is that not the essence of faith? But we can't see it, but we believe it because God's word is true. And motivated by godly fear, reverence for the Lord, he built an ark to deliver his family. And by faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so Noah builds the ark, he gathers the animals, each according to their kind, and he and his family are delivered from the the flood. Now let me give you a couple quick facts, okay? We don't have time this morning just to walk through every facet of this, but I I just want to hit a couple things quickly. First of all, listen to me, The, the, the flood was universal in scope. There are some who have advocated for a regional flood. The problem with this is God does not give a regional description of the effects of sin. Everywhere mankind is on the earth, the sin is rampant. People are evil. And God says, I'm going to destroy the entire earth. Every animal, not on the ark. Every person, not on the ark. This isn't something you put on the wall of your baby's nursery. This is people clinging to high ground for as long as they can before they drown. The flood was universal in scope. Secondly, the flood was indeed a historical event. Listen, do you realize there there are, this is is cool, over 200 examples of flood narratives recorded in ancient documents and and traditions. Do you know why all of these other ancient traditions and documents record some version of an ancient flood? Because there was one. 
It's a historical event. Third, the flood explains why the world exists in its current form. Fourth, the ark was large enough to accommodate Noah and his family in every animal kind. Let me show you a picture of Ken Ham's ark. <laughs> this is in Williamstown, Kentucky. And the folks at the Creation Museum have built this. Maybe some of you have been there and seen it in person. This is actually an event at the opening. I was there with my wife and got to see it and have been to the ark many, many, many times. I just wanted to see the scope. They, they built this to the best they could on the measurements that we have. It, it's certainly a, a close replica, probably as close as anyone else has done. I would tell Ken jokingly, there's two people that built an ark, Noah and you. <laughs> and, um, you know, so this is as close as we're going to get. If, there's, if it starts raining a lot, let's just make our way to Williamstown, Kentucky. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, and I just want you to see the people there. You can see some vehicles there kind of in the middle. I just want you to have a sense of the size of the ark. It was more than large enough to accommodate the animals required to be on it. And, 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 so, and so, so here's the thing. Here's what we know to be true historically, okay? The flood was a year-long global catastrophic event that destroyed the pre-flood world, reshaped the continents, buried countless creatures, and laid down the rock layers that we have today. This is not fable. This is not story in the sense of something that's fictitious. This is a historical event that largely explains many natural phenomenon that we have today. And it also gives clarity as to the condition of mankind. Because I know that we would think post-flood that, you know, man would learn his lesson and we would be better. But let me, let me show you what happened. Now, fast forwarding to Genesis 8, after the description of the flood waters and the death of, of all that lived, with the exception of Noah, his family, and the kinds that he had on the ark. Here's what happens when Noah comes off the ark. Now, Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. Let me just pause right there because that's not what we're expecting to read. We're expecting to read, well, I will never again flood the earth because mankind will have learned his lesson. That's not what the Lord says. I know sometimes we think of it that way. Well, the world before the flood, boy, that was a mess up. Well, I'm glad we don't live in that day. Newsflash, you do. And you expect to read, I will never curse the ground by way of a universal flood ever again because man has learned his lesson. No, the Lord says, I will never do it. Although man's heart is evil from youth moving forward. And then he continues in verse 21 of Genesis 8, I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. Why? Because mankind is no longer evil? Because we no longer think on evil continuously? We no longer act according to our evil impulses? We no longer have violence and murder and distortion and dysfunction? No, because God in his grace has chosen never to flood the world again. 
but you and I are no different. The world is equally as bad. But yet God has made a promise. He will not destroy the earth by flood ever again. And so let me give you just a couple takeaways I think are important as we look at the flood, okay? We're covering three chapters today. It's a lot, but, but listen, a couple, couple things just to bring it home. First of all, our sin problem is worse than we can imagine. And as you survey our society and our world, you know what you discover? That all of our solutions to the betterment of our society are external. Well, we can better educate. We can develop systems for better economics. Develop better technology to improve people's lives. Have you ever noticed that all of our fixes to what ails us are external? Education, economics, technology. And so here's the awesome thing. We can, we can put mankind on the moon is that not cool? We can put men and women on the moon, but we can't fix a broken marriage. We can communicate with anybody in the world instantly through technology and social media, but yet so many of us use social media and technology to tear others down and build ourselves up. Hey, I got news for you. The fix to what's broken in our world is not external, it's gotta be internal. And what's broken about us is our pride and arrogance in thinking that we don't need God. We're doing just fine on our own. Except that we're not. And so we, like this generation of people in the days of the flood, press deeper and deeper into our wickedness, our evil, our brokenness, our selfishness, our pride. We use those external means of fixing us actually <laughs> to press us deeper into our own dysfunction. And so I just want you to understand today that your sin problem is far worse than you can imagine. Because if you're like me, you're never fully honest with yourself about how bad you are. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> you are an awful person. <laughs> and your sin problem is worse than you can imagine. Mine is too. Here's what Peter says. They deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was brought about from water and through water. And through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. You wanna know how bad our sin and our evil is today? Back then, God judged the world with water. He'll never do that again, but I want you to see what Peter says next. He is about to judge the world by fire. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Our world is no better than the world of Noah, pre-flood. 
And although our world will never face a judgment of water, listen to me, we are facing a judgment of fire. It's coming. The world is going to, the God is going to judge this evil world. He is going to judge the evil people in it. He is going to vindicate his people. He is going to right every wrong. There is a day of judgment coming. It's not judgment through water. It's judgment through fire. You see, because our sin problem is worse than we can imagine, and God's going to deal with it. The secondly, let me give you some good news, okay? I think you came to church for some good news today. God's love is greater than we can imagine. You can't get to God's love unless you first understand the, the depth of your sin problem. But here's the good news. God's love is greater than we can imagine. And so Peter goes on to say this, that there is a day of judgment coming, but don't overlook this one fact, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. And the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, just as he was patient with that generation before the flood while Noah's building the ark. And, and there's all of these years transpiring where people can repent, but don't. Just like that right now, God is giving us time. He's giving us opportunity to respond to his love and grace before the day of judgment comes. Because Peter says, God's desire is not that any perish, but that all come to repentance. And our sin is worse than we can imagine, but here's the good news. God's love is greater than we can imagine. And he today has provided a way of escape and the same way he provided a way of escape for Noah and his family. You say, how does God do that? I'll tell you how he does it. He appointed a moment in human history where his wrath and his love meet. And therefore the death of Jesus is where our sin and God's love meet. And this, dear ones, is our ark of salvation. Because on the cross of Jesus, listen to me very, very carefully, God dealt with your sin. God dealt with your rebellion. God dealt with your selfishness. Because just as was the case with Noah, listen, who was delivered not around judgment or despite judgment, he was delivered through judgment. And as the waters of judgment surrounded him, Noah was delivered through those waters. And in the same way, listen to me, on the cross, when Jesus was crushed for our sin, he took upon himself as one who is righteous and innocent, the sins, the rebellion, the selfishness, the pride of those of us who have turned against God. Yet Jesus took upon himself the wrath that was due us so that by the love of God to put him there for us, by the submission of Jesus to the will of the Father to stay there for us, Jesus absorbs the wrath so that you and I can be delivered not around judgment, not despite judgment, but through the judgment of Jesus in our place. And that is our hope. That is our hope. God does not wink an eye at your sin and say, ah, you're a pretty good person. I'll go ahead and save you. No, you're not a good person. But God is a good God. 
And in your place, he sent his son to die for your sin so that just like Noah, you can be delivered through judgment. The judgment of Jesus in your place. And so what do we celebrate today? What do we tether our lives to today? What do we, what do we stand on today? I'll tell you what. The fact that our sin is forgiven, separated from us as far as the east is from the west through a righteous substitute in Jesus who took the wrath of God in our place and delivers us from future judgment. So that those of us who have asked for that forgiveness of God through the shed blood of Jesus, who have repented of our sin and asked him to save us by faith, guess what? We will be delivered from this future judgment by fire and we will spend forever with the Lord. And if you don't have that hope today, you can, you can. All you need to do is turn from your sin and, and ask God to save you, to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, and he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross for your sin, that he rose from the dead and he, he secured victory for all who believe. And if you'll ask Jesus to save you, he will. You see, that, that's the only hope that you have. And if you've done that, I wanna remind you, hey, listen to me, if you're a Christ follower today, I wanna remind you that as you leave here today and you go out into the world, you go out as one who represents this Jesus, who is free from judgment, who, who's been saved by grace. Your life has meaning and purpose. You are more loved than you can ever imagine. And no one or no thing can ever change that. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. We are His, right? And that's why we sing one of my favorite hymns, the solid rock. His oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Because he supports me in the whelming flood. And so I wanna encourage you today to live for this Jesus, to love him, to walk with him, to honor him, because your salvation is secure, your future is secure, and your life has meaning, value, and purpose. You are loved more than you could ever 